Good evening. Turns out after a thorough investigation, I figured out why the sound was lost this morning. Apparently, Steve Brown thought I'd talk too long, and like at the Oscars, he was trying to get me to leave the stage, but I wouldn't comply. That was the problem. No, actually, my microphone ran out of battery, so um, easy fix. Let's hope that doesn't happen tonight, or maybe you do hope it does happen. Story is told that former president and fellow Texan George W. Bush was sitting in an airport terminal awaiting a flight when he noticed a man across the way dressed in a long white robe with long flowing white hair and a long white beard. He was holding a staff in one hand and he had two tablets under the other arm. And so he walked over to him and he said, uh, hey, are you Moses? And the man wouldn't speak to him. And so he asked him again, he said, sir, are, are you supposed to be Moses? Wouldn't speak to him. Finally, he grabbed him by the shoulders, looked him in the eye and said, are you Moses? And the man, somewhat frustrated and agitated, said, yes, yes, I am. And George W. said, well, why didn't you answer me the first two times? He said, look, the last time I spoke to a bush, I wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. Tonight we continue our series entitled The Hall of Flaw, and the purpose of this series is to highlight the fact that failure doesn't have to be fatal. The Bible is a book of failures, and yet we should find encouragement in the fact that God uses flaw individuals. Many of the heroes that we read about in the scriptures are not unlike us, flawed yet faithful, and that's what you notice when you read through Hebrews chapter 11. It's often been referred to as the Faith Hall of Fame, and all the heroes that are enshrined in this hall of honor are individuals who failed miserably, but those failures are not what is highlighted in Hebrews chapter 11. No, what is highlighted is their faith, which tells us a couple of things. It tells us, number one, you will fail, and it tells us, number two, if you're going to fail, fail forward. It's kind of like the young executive that took a job at IBM and he cost the company $10 million in a risky business venture. When the CEO of that time, Tom Watson, heard about it, he called him into his office and the young executive said, I, I guess you want my resignation. He goes, resignation? No, we just spent $10 million educating you. The Bible doesn't paper over the failures of its heroes. Noah got drunk and exposed himself. Abraham lied twice about his wife being his sister. Jacob deceived his father and cheated his brother out of the birthright. Peter denied Jesus three times. And Moses let his anger get the best of him, at least twice that we know of. Once led to him murdering an Egyptian. The other time led to him not being able to enter the promised land. And shockingly, those failures seem to be an afterthought. So I want you to look with me what the Hebrew writer states about Moses, Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 23. It says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he persevered as though seeing him who is unseen. By faith 
He kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. How many of you have had to say no to something in order to say yes to God? All of us have had to refuse sin. Maybe you've had to say no to a relationship in order to say yes to God. Maybe you've had to say no to a career so that you could say yes to God. Perhaps you've had to say no to certain different areas of your life that conflicted with your service to the church. Being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, will interfere with your life at some point. You most likely will have to say no at some point in order to say yes to God, which is why others many times choose not to become a Christian. They don't want to say no to certain things in their lives. They don't want to go all in on being a disciple because they want to say yes to their desires. However, you and I both know that our spiritual security depends on us mastering that little word, no. We must be able to say no if we're going to be able to stand firm in the faith. Temptation has to be met with flat refusal. Maybe won't work. Indifference won't do. Beating around the bush won't work. Apathy won't do. There must be a fervent resolve on our part to say no to anything that stands in the way of us saying yes to God. It's been said, and I agree, that we are the sum total of our choices. God has endowed us with the ability to choose, and we make hundreds of choices every single day. Some choices are rather inconsequential. Others, however, have a great price attached to them, either for better or for worse. Character is revealed through the choices that we make in life. And when we examine the life of Moses, we see the choice had everything to do with his character. Moses made a choice that would seem rather nonsensical to the world around us. He chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And the question becomes, who does that? What kind of person would do that? Who chooses to be treated harshly over instant gratification? The world would call Moses crazy, just as they probably think we are crazy for choosing to be here on a Sunday night and listen to some guy rant about Moses. But keep in mind that such a choice for Moses would involve misery and heartache. Moses would be leading a grumpy, stubborn, complaining, ungrateful group of people through the wilderness. He would endure all sorts of hardship and I'm sure there were times that maybe he even questioned his decision. But Moses knew that one day with the people of God is better than a thousand days apart from God. So he makes this decision. He knew that it was more noble to serve as the doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to live in the tents of the wicked. Somewhere along the way, Moses learned his true identity as a Hebrew. His soul ached for the plight of his people. And so this adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter knew that he was needed. He was called into service and he knew that he had something to offer. He knew that sharing in their plight would be better than staying where he was and soaking in sin. Now we know at the beginning he tried to refuse God's call. But 
He later took it up. He chose to cast his lot with the afflicted. He counted the cost. He knew that sin could be pleasurable. He knew it could be enjoyable. But he also knew that true joy and true contentment are to be found in the Lord. The way of the sinner is hard, Proverbs 13, 15. What seems enjoyable for the moment brings terrible torture in the end. And the spiritual fabric of our character is sewn together by the choices that we make. And when given the choice of eternal versus temporal, we must elevate the spiritual over the physical. All too often, we choose the physical because it satisfies for the moment. It's kind of like Snickers. It satisfies for like 30 minutes, right? Oftentimes, we don't think long-term. We don't garner a heavenly perspective. Something that I'm sure Clay Peterson deals with all the time, right? In investments, people constantly asking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? you got to take the long-haul view. The market is up and down, right? My, my, my uh, advisor tells me that all the time. Quit looking at it every day. You're in it for the long haul. we got to take the long-haul view when it comes to saying no to the instant and yes to the heavenly. Now, Someone once said, as I said, that life is the sum total of our choices, that that's what makes us up. Someone also said that life is difficult because unlike school, you get the test first and the lesson later. And I think that's probably true as well. The board of directors at a bank recognized that there was a young teller who had the acumen to actually be the next president of this particular bank. The bank president was retiring, and so they named this bank teller as the successor. And so he walks in one day to the current bank president's office, and he says, as you know, I'm going to take your place soon. I I could use any advice that you might be willing to give. And so the bank president says, sit down, son. And he sits down, and he says, two words, right decisions. He says, okay, well, that's, that's good advice. How do you make right decisions? The bank president says one word, experience. He says, okay, that's good too, but how do you get experience? The bank president says two words, wrong decisions. And that's probably true, isn't it? We are a product of our failures. And that's okay if we choose to learn from them. There's only one type of person, one type of person, and that's the person who has failed God. However, we fail forward when we take the experience of wrong decisions and allow them to become right decisions later on. The greatest challenge when it comes to living in this world is now versus later, instant gratification versus delayed gratification, or being earthly focused versus heavenly focused. So to give a little background about Moses and the decision he made, in 1920, archaeologist Howard Carter found the tomb of King Tutankhamun or King Tut. And what they noticed in his tomb was uh, a lot of extravagant treasures, but among them was just a little golden coffin that contained his visceral organs. It was valued at like $250,000, just that little gold-plated coffin. So that might give you an idea as to what Moses was giving up in order to be with God's people. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, beginning in verse 5, we read these words. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab in accordance with the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his burial place to this day. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eyesight was not dim, nor had his vigor left him. 
So when Moses died at the ripe old age of 120, the biblical record states that his eyesight was not dim. In other words, his physical vision remained clear and sharp, but more importantly was the fact that his spiritual vision did not fade. And the Hebrew writer states, for he was looking toward the reward. The verb looking here is rather interesting. In the original language, it's the word apablepo, which derives from apo, away from, and blepo, to look. And thus it means to look away from all else and focus one's attention upon a certain object or in a certain direction. We call it tunnel vision. Moses had tunnel vision. He turned his attention away from the trivial things of this world, this planet, and he fixed his eyes on the eternal reward. Of course, living with purpose or living in general will take perseverance on our part. This isn't easy. If it were easy, everybody would be doing it, right? Leading a group of grumbling, complaining, ungrateful, stubborn people would be highly discouraging. Being the instrument of deliverance for God's people would requiring the long service, uh, long suffering uh, for service that maybe would test you to the limits. We all know about that, don't we? We've all been discouraged at some point. Have you, have you ever been discouraged doing the Lord's work? You ever become depressed? You ever dealt with undue criticism? You ever found yourself so worn out from other activities that you just couldn't muster up the enthusiasm to, to come to Bible class or to church? And it's during these times that we have to have tunnel vision. There will always be other things vying for our attention. The devil is going to make sure of that. There will always be disappointment and discouragement, whether self-inflicted or otherwise, but we take a lesson from Moses and we fix our eyes on the divine and not the earthly. The key to enduring is focusing on God and not always our circumstances. D.L. Moody once said that Moses spent the first 40 years of his life thinking he was somebody, the next 40 years of life realizing he was a nobody, and the last 40 years of his life discovering that God can use a nobody. From a prince in the palace of Egypt, Moses became a shepherd in the barren wilderness of Midian. And from being in the limelight of Pharaoh's government, Moses went from isolation and obscurity, from being a somebody, he instantly became a nobody. Killing an Egyptian meant that he was a traitor, at least in the eyes of Pharaoh. And so he fled. But maybe Moses' actions were not just an isolated moment of weakness. Maybe, maybe it had something to do with what the Hebrew writer said about his character. Now understand, I'm not condoning murder. And certainly Moses was wrong. No doubt about it. He was absolutely wrong in what he did. However, could it be that Moses stood for the right thing in the wrong way? Notice what is written in Exodus 2, verse 11 and following. Now it came about in those days... When Moses had grown up, that he went out to his fellow Hebrews and looked at their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his fellow Hebrews. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw that there was no one around, he struck and killed the Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. Now he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? But he said, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. Now, Moses was right in running to the aid of one of his fellow Hebrews. 
In that moment, he gave up his position, his power, and his prosperity in order to help one of his own. That wasn't wrong, but his emotions got the best of him, of course, and his right intent was followed with the wrong action. And there's another instance where, he, where we see him doing basically the same thing, and this is verses 9 and following of Numbers chapter 20. He reads, So Moses took the staff from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron summoned the assembly in front of the rock, and he said to him, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Since you did not trust in me, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. For that reason, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were called the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel argued with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. Now, if you're like me at first read, you think, really? Really, God? I mean, you're going to keep him from entering the promised land because he struck the rock? Seriously? But you got to dig a little deeper, of course you got to get the context. you got to understand what's going on here. I think to myself, at first glance, anyone else in that situation would have done the same thing. Dealing with these stubborn, non-compliant, grumbling people, sure he's going to be frustrated. And sure he's going to act on that frustration. I could be tempted to question God's judgment here. At the very least, I can be bothered by his handling of Moses in this situation. But obviously, it's not good to stay in a place where you criticize or cast judgment over God or question his motives. Whenever you read scripture and you find that your sensibilities don't line up with God's acts, you face a choice. You can reject God's ways and stand in judgment over him, or you can submit to God's ways and ask him to transform your sensibilities so that they are in line with him and his word. Because the areas where God offends us, perhaps, are the areas where we need to grow. And when you dig a little deeper into Moses' actions here, and God's actions as well, you discover that Moses once again acts impulsively and lets his frustration get the best of him. Just like he did with the Egyptian. Now, God had told Moses once before to strike the rock, but in this instance, he tells him to do what? To speak to it, right? So he disobeys God, but his failure wasn't just disobedient. At its root, it was a transgression of faith, just like the Egyptian that he killed. You see, God would deliver his people, and Moses acted impulsively on his anger. You know, Scripture tells us, be angry and do not sin, but that's the problem. As, as people, we often act out in sin when we get angry. And certainly Moses was angry, and he acted wrongly. We might could even justify such behavior, but at the end of the day, God was going to take care of the Egyptians. That was his job. Moses jumped the gun. And here at Mirabah, Moses did the same thing. He jumped the gun again, and look at it with me. Verse 12, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Since you did not trust in me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. For that reason, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Over and over again in the Old Testament, you see that God is establishing his holiness. And so some of these situations, like here with Moses or when Uzzah touched the ark and was struck dead, those situations are God showing his holiness. And he was making an example. And unfortunately for Uzzah, for Moses, for others, they were the brunt of it. Moses' great failure was that he didn't trust God in the moment. 
God had always provided, and God would continue to provide. God told Moses to speak to the rock, but he struck it twice. And the third strike was to forbid him from entering the promised land. By striking the rock instead of speaking to it like God had commanded, Moses did not honor God as holy, and that was enough to keep him out of the promised land. And we can say it like this, Moses attempted to do God's work by human strength. He acted in strength rather than acting in power. God's power would provide, but Moses allowed the strength of his anger to get in the way. But there's always a but, right? It always goes a little deeper. We've talked before about how Jesus is all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, you can almost find him on every page. You see Jesus here? The rock was always a symbol of generosity and grace. In fact, the rock was not just a geological formation. Notice what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1. He says, For I, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate of the same spiritual food. And all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock, which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for their dead bodies were spread out in the wilderness. Over and over again, we see foreshadowing of the Messiah. We see it with Moses. He was a deliverer like Jesus. In fact, the Jews thought that the new Messiah that was to come would be Moses, reincarnated. But he is a shadow of the reality of the Messiah that was to come. We see it over and over again. These shadows keep reappearing, and the rock is a shadow. It's symbolic of Jesus who would be struck with the rod, who would pour out living water, who would sustain God's people, not just for the moment, but for all eternity, forever, as they dwell in the promised land. You see, the bigger picture is that God had a plan. Moses had to buy into the plan, just like we do. He has a plan for his people. Moses needed to get out of the way and let God work. He was a tool. He wasn't the power. But he took matters into his own hands, and it cost him. However, God still had a plan. He always has a plan, and he will still accomplish that plan. God still had a lot in store even for Moses. He was still God's man to lead God's people. Although Moses would pay a hefty price for his disobedience, it's not like he would never experience the peace of God's promise. He just wouldn't enter the promised land. And to Moses' credit, he doesn't pout, he doesn't quit, he doesn't complain about his punishment. He puts his head down and he continues to faithfully lead and follow. Do you think Moses is in heaven? Do you think he's enjoying the promised land today? I mean, how can you be in the faith hall of fame and not be in heaven? You're going to have a hard time convincing me that he didn't make it to the ultimate promised land. I don't think anyone listed in the faith hall of fame is in torment. Which just goes to show that God is a holy God who demands holiness from his people. However, it's not three strikes and you're out. This holy God is still a loving and forgiving God, which means that failure doesn't have to be final. Moses made some bad decisions, but he made one really, really good life-changing decision along the way. To still follow God in his successes and in his failures. And here's something else that I think Hebrews chapter 11 and really the whole Bible 
brings to light. Failure is an event. It's not a person. I don't want to make light of failure. Sin is sin, and sin must be dealt with effectively. But failure is not an event. Failure is an event, I should say, not a person. It's not your identity. We identify people by their accomplishments or their failures. You think about it. When you hear Richard Nixon, what do you think of? Watergate. I'm not a crook. You know who Mark Hamill is? You do. Luke Skywalker. He played a lot of other roles. Nobody ever knows him as anything other than Luke Skywalker. Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth was known as the Sultan of Swat. He was a home run hitter. That's all he's really known for. Did you know he set the major league record for strikeouts? Over 1,300 strikeouts in his career. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on the feat, people in our society are remembered more for a moment in time than a lifetime. And for some, history has a way of being twisted in their favor so that they are remembered fondly or not so fondly, even if unfairly. But thankfully, people and moments don't define us. God does. And you read through that Faith Hall of Fame, you will find people who have failed over and over again. There's one woman there by the name of Rahab, and you never see her name without a moniker behind it, the prostitute. Over and over again, these people failed, and yet that's not what's highlighted. And you say, well, Rahab was a prostitute. Moses killed somebody. You know, Noah got naked and exposed himself. Abraham lied at least on two occasions. You say, who cares? That's not what they're remembered for. Doesn't matter how you remember them. All that, rem- all that matters is how God remembers you. You, know, you go to a funeral, and somebody will stand up typically and read the obituary. And that obituary contains a lot of fun facts about the person who has died. You find out when they were born, where they grew up, where they received their education, who they were married to, how long they were married, their kids, their grandkids, all those things. And those things are interesting. Those things are highlighted because they're interesting and they tell you a little bit more about the person that we are there to honor. But if they're a child of God, none of that other stuff matters. You could just stand up and say, they're a child of God. That's all that matters. You could actually list all of their failures in that obituary. You could stand up and say, you know, Tim Smith was a good guy, but let me tell you what he did. Doesn't matter. He's a child of God. And it doesn't matter what you think of him. Doesn't matter what you walk out of the church or the funeral service thinking about Tim Smith. All that matters is what God thinks of him. That is all that matters. Did you keep fighting to the finish? Did you keep playing till the whistle blew? Did you keep trusting in God? Did you keep the faith? Did you fail for it? That is all that matters. So, if you're someone who is dealing with defeat, if you're someone who is hurting, and you need the prayers of this church family, if you need to get back on track, let us help you. Jim's going to lead us in a song. Why don't you come as we stand, as we sing.